Hello and welcome to the second episode of Demystifying Politics, the political podcast which allows you, which allows us to delve into the topics of the week and explain them better to young people all around the world. The three topics on the news we're going to be talking about today will be the Capitol Hill attack, the Kill the Bill protests, there were some more of them last night, and the contentious unveiling of the controversial UK government race report. Lastly, after we finish these topics, we'll have an in-depth discussion about the future of the Republican Party in the United States. Nathan, do you want to start us off with the uh, Capitol Hill attack? Sure, of course. On Friday afternoon, Friday the 2nd of April, one police officer was killed after a car that had rammed into the police barricades uh, hit an officer. Now, obviously, after the attacks in January, there's been much more security around Capitol Hill and around government buildings in Washington, D.C. in general. So therefore, there was, there was much surprise when this happened. The motive was unknown, but it is believed that a black nationalist uh, was responsible. Now, it's, I think I said this last week, that when, we, when things like this happen, often the immediate thing says, well, let's not, politi- let's not politicize this. Uh, let's not bring politics into this. But we've got to remember that there are hundreds of politicians, career politicians, that make a living off politicizing issues. And it was no surprise to see that happened over the weekend. So popular representative Ilhan Omar uh, quipped that there would have been more killed if he was wielding a gun. And we want to, I think the, t- I think the question I want to bring forward is, why, why are attacks like this, it seems that like attacks like this are going to happen more in the future. How should the police and the government respond to this? And what can the police and government do to prevent things like this from happening? Dev, do you have any opinions on this? Yeah, I, was, I think it's, it's two-pronged, um, this issue of um, terrorism, domestic terrorism. So I think what's first of all interesting about domestic terrorism is it's citizens of that country hurting the country itself. Whereas, you know, traditionally you would think of terrorism as some foreign group from Afghanistan, Pakistan, some foreign country coming in because they, they you know, they hate the particular country that they, they want to attack and they attack it. Think Al-Qaeda, think ISIS, et cetera, et cetera. This, as you said, like this domestic terrorism um, phenomena is, you know, rising and it's become more prevalent in, in, the, in recent years, specifically, of course, the Capitol Hill insurrection not, not so long ago. So I think, yeah, as I said, you know, Firstly, I think it's the uh, rising tide of extremism in in the US and around the world. And I think that's from both sides, I'm, you know. So as you mentioned, this attack from, was, from, from, was from a black nationalist that um, if, if I think I know what you mean, what you're talking about, black nationalists won't say that's quite far left. Then of course, other attacks, you know, especially the, the, the January one, that was, you know, mainly far right groups. So I think the issue is, you know, rising extremism, you know, from both sides. Another issue, of course, is that the government, you know, they, they don't have the tools in, in which to 
to deal with this rising extremism. So, of course, you know, we want divergent thoughts. You know, you don't want everyone thinking the same thing. And of course, over the past 30 years during the neoliberal era, you know, we had this sort of strange agreement with, you know, the right and the left, and they were pretty much in agreement when it came to economics and then had a bit of disagreement on social issues, but really they were they were quite same, the same. So I think the you know, them splitting apart has been a good thing, but it's also been a bad thing because as you say, we've seen this rising tide of extremism. In terms of, I think the government uh, response, I think governments need to you know, look through social media, update their tools and see how better they can try and, and you know, stop this, this, this type of extremism. What do you think? Well, I definitely believe that the government has the resources to deal with this. I mean, uh, the US government, for example, spends trillions of dollars a year, uh, has a military of a hundred, hundreds of billions of dollars a year. So they definitely have the capability to deal with things like this. I think the, the efforts, therefore, need to be devoted to preventing things like this. And the real question, the real political question is, can we prevent ideological tensions from bubbling over without censoring uh, converging political ideologies? That's a real challenge for democracies. You've I got think- to... Yeah, I think everyone's you've got not necessarily value everyone's opinion, but you've got to at least let everyone have their opinion without direct tension between those groups. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail right on the head there, uh, which is that, you know, it, it we should encourage divergent thought. But at the same time, where then at one point does divergent thought just become terrorist extremism? And at what point does the government itself have to have to clamp down on it? And I think there's not there's not that many easy answers with this. Because say with at least with the uh, Middle East terrorism, say Al Qaeda, ISIS, you knew what they were fighting for, right? You knew that the reason Al Qaeda was, or the reason ISIS hadn't, you know, hate the United States is because the United States, you know, invaded the Middle East. And Al Qaeda, sorry, was was before the invasion of Iraq, but Al Qaeda is more just anti what it perceived to be U.S. imperialism abroad. So with that, you're going to say, okay, well, I think if the U.S. government stopped going around to different places in the world and instituting their own regimes and started having more diplomatic and peaceful talks, maybe this terrorism will subside. With this um, new domestic extremism, I think it's got to be, it's more the political discourse and the toxicity of it. I think social media is to blame for it because in social, on social media, right, because of the nature of social media, because of algorithms and whatnot, they, they, they place you into different groups. Oh, the group, you know, cricket lovers, football lovers politics oh right-wing politics lover you know whatever and then you have an entire algorithm entire social media feed clapping you on telling telling you how brave and wonderful you are for supporting this ideology telling you how smart you are for being uh, say a um, a libertarian always telling you how how beautifully uh, brilliant you are for being a conservative or a liberal you know and you have no divergent sort of opinions or divergent thoughts within that within that and i think that has allowed extremism to to fester but i think you know social media is partly to blame for this and i think it's also partly to blame the the political discourse is partly to blame oh yeah i definitely agree that social media has created these echo chambers before social media you could definitely choose to associate with certain groups but there wasn't a but that but the place you spend spent sometimes eight hours a day on wasn't actively pushing you in that direction 
you were forced to interact with other people, whether they be at work or the supermarket or at your church. Nowadays, that's not necessarily the case. I also think that social media has caused it in a different way rather than just algorithmic echo chambers. On social media, anyone can say whatever they believe with pretty much with almost zero consequences. I mean, if you put up, put up a VPN, anonymize your account, you can say pretty much whatever you want with no consequences. This has made people believe that they are all powerful in their speech, but they aren't all powerful in their actions. So they can have these thoughts, they can express these thoughts, they can't directly act on them. And in more extreme cases, this does lead to domestic terrorism, as we, as we saw on Friday and as we saw in January. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. And I think the way in which we can c- combat this, I think it's, it's, it's a, you know, there's two bits of that. So there's obviously the news which you get, the news channels. So in America, even the news channels themselves are tribalized. So you've got CNN, you've got Fox News, you've got whatever. And it's what's really strange about these networks is one goes in defense, one goes on offense. So when it's a Republican president, CNN, MSNBC, whatever, whatever, they all go on offense and the Fox News goes in defense, opposite way around when uh, a, a Democrat is president. So not only do you have news channels, which are now tribalized in America, but of course, social media. Whereas in the UK, at least with the news channels, of course, there's, there's been a lot of complaints about the BBC from the left and the right. But generally, you can you can generally say that they're not, you know, extre- they're not tribalized, at least, um, in the sense that there is issues one can point to with the BBC, but it's not tribalized like the US news networks, but social media is. So I think having a, um, a, um, a source of news which everyone agrees on, agrees on is important in combating extremism, but also, of course, online, trying to get, trying to change the way these platforms work to encourage more polite discourse and more, you know, more friendly rhetoric. Exactly. Now, on to our second item. There have been more Kill the Bill protests, and on Saturday, 107 arrests occurred in central London, according to the Metropolitan Police. These arrests were for offences such as breaching the peace, which is public disturbance, violent disorder, and in some cases, assault on police and COVID violations, violations against COVID restrictions. Now, I think the COVID restriction, I think that's sort of a cop-out because we see people, I mean, if you're in the UK, you'll know that people have been out and about uh, with pretty much no police interference. I do think the police are targeting these protesters based on maybe political or ideological motivations, but they have said that there was violent disconduct and that's why they've made some of these arrests. So as we know, these protests were in response to a new policing bill, which gives police the powers to clamp down on protests and more easily arrest people that they believe are acting out of line at protests. Dev, what do you think? I think that it, just as we said last week, um, you know, there's, there's, there's two parts of this. So of course, the kill the book protests themselves I think it's fine, and exactly as you said, I think the police generally, they, I don't think they've covered themselves in glory. I think the way they've, they've treated some of these protesters and it's just hurting their own cause. In terms of violent conduct, I'll, okay, I'll believe the police when they said that there was some violent conduct. Um, and I think that's 
either extremists. I think what the official line from the protesters themselves is it's extremists um, infiltrating their movement. Um, I think it's it's a mixture, but I think um, if you're so fired up and you're so um, passionate about a cause, there's probably uh, people that out there that have taken their anger out on the police, perhaps unjustifiably. Uh, yeah, um, I think that, you know, I've always been a supporter of your right to protest. I think you should always be non-violent because that's the most effective way in bringing about political change, in my opinion. Um, and of course, I don't think de de devolving into violence is the answer. But I also think the police need to take a step back and, and see to themselves, how are they dealing with these protesters? How are they dealing with the situation presented to them? Because if because the government in this bill is essentially giving police more power and their argument is the police is responsible and they will use it responsibly. But if the police, with the limited powers they have, remember, the, the bill is not passed yet. So the police don't have these extra powers that they would be given had, had the bill passed. They're still you know, acting irresponsibly. So it's just going to make more and more of the general public think, well, the police are going to act like this prior to the bill. What are they going to do when the bill is passed? You know, they need they need to show the police, the Metropolitan Police Force needs to show that they are responsible and that they will use these new powers well. And I don't think they're giving off that message at the moment. I agree 100 percent It's an obstacle battle. Exactly. Even the police could have handled this in a much better way if they had uh not prosecuted thing, if they had not gone for things like COVID, uh general disorder, and only prosecuted on like assaults against officers they would have a much better public appearance. People would sympathise with them much more. But combined with the Sarah Everard protests, and now this, people are people are becoming more critical of the police, as they believe they're a threat to our liberties and they do not enforce the law when it is just. So it's, it's yeah, it's an optical battle. The police have to, they have to pick their battles. And I don't think they've done that very well. Um, yeah, I, I, I completely agree with exactly with what you said when it, when it comes to the police. I, exactly. And I think the public generally themselves are quite sympathetic to when someone, you know, assaults, you know, if you put a charge of assaulting police officers, the public are very sympathetic to, to officers themselves. And if they saw that, oh, look, at these violent thugs assaulting police officers, they probably would have been on the side of the police. But the police, exactly, as you said, going out, arresting on um charges that are unnecessary probably they've not they've not proven to the public why they they deserve these new powers and i think all it's going to do is just slow down the bill and force a maybe not too distant in the future u-turn oh jeremy corbyn notably attended the protest yesterday and he defended the right to protest former labor leader defending the right to protest he invoked Nelson Mandela and the suffragettes as people who stood up for the right to protest and therefore made effective change. I do not think this will be a good political battle for the Conservatives. Last week, Boris Johnson condemned the violence of the clashes without uh, addressing the protesters, the grievances of the protesters themselves. And I think his lack of vocalisation this week will not help him. Because yeah, I do not think they his I think his lack of vocalization will hurt him. Exactly. I think generally, just just to explain to those who, who don't know out in the uh, the listening audience, generally when when governments try to pass big important pieces of legislation, 
they either try and rush it through. They either go really go deep in the trenches, all out PR war, really try and get this bill passed. Or as we've seen from these conservatives, they're sort of just kind of ignoring it almost. And the fact that Boris Johnson is not pretty Patel, they've not gone to the trenches. They're not really tried to make the case for this bill shows me that. And the fact that I'm pretty sure that they've slowed it down generally anyways, in terms of it's, it's, it's rushed through parliament, either that they're going to go for the, um, the quiet rush through and still get it through, despite what people are protesting, or they're slowing it down and, and not really picking a battle because in the future they, they're giving themselves room for a U-turn. And I think the fact that Boris Johnson has not really been out there making the case for this for this pretty important piece of legislation, one could say probably one of the most important when it comes to you know civil liberties and protests for, for a while that we've had in the UK. Um, the fact that he's not doing that tells me that he himself is not doesn't think that this is a battle he's going to win. And the Labour Party are really, especially the left of the Labour Party, they're really on the front front foot on this one, barring some sort of new development in this, I don't know, a, um, a terrorist from, maybe a domestic terrorist from the, 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 the far left of the Labour Party goes and shoots like 10 police officers, then maybe um, the public mood will shift. But at the moment, the, uh, the kill the poor protesters, they're definitely on the front foot. I yes, I believe that summarizes quite well. Yeah. Okay. So now we'll move on to the last piece of uh, news for the day. I'll be covering it. So recently, some of you may have heard that the UK government uh, published a controversial race report. So a while ago, because of you know Black Lives Matter protests and whatnot, Boris Johnson promised to um, have a commission and publish a report on institutional racism in the UK. Now, this report was, um, the findings of the report were published earlier early this week, but I think it was leaked to the media a few days before anyways. So the, the report found a few things. So the most controversial of it, it claimed there was no institutional racism in the UK and that, um, you know, people uh, that we should scrap the term BAME and whatnot. So I think I found a really good BBC article on this that I'll, I'll just read through just for people to hear. So the commission's report runs to 258 pages, but some conclusions are brief, as I said, to the media in advance of its publication on Wednesday. These include included the call to ditch the commonly used BAME acronym. Um, obviously, it found one of the main findings, as I said, was that the UK was not institutionally racist. Um, uh, and then uh, there were also some like non-contentious recommendations of the report when it came to sort of um, other bits of the report. The more contentious part was it was also talked about unconscious racial bias training, and it said that. So a lot of a lot of companies, if, if people don't know this, use something called unconscious racial bias training. The premise being that people in their minds, if they're not if they're not consciously racist, have in the back of their minds, oh, this person is whatever, whatever. This person's Indian. You know, he's I don't know. Someone. Oh, this person's black. He's you know, he's a criminal, some, some, something in, in, that they don't consciously think, but it's in the back of their mind. And so what the report says is that it's not, that instead of using money and resources for, for that type of training, it recommends that they use it for resources and, and, and commissions to help the company or whatever, um, provide racial equity a bit better. And it, it also said that any sort of differences in, in the UK when it came to, um, um, 
ethnic income or educational attainments. Exactly. When it came to uh, that type of stuff was because of different choices and, and factors and whatnot. So that's the main findings of the report. Nathan, what do you think of this? So I do think they've shot themselves in the foot here by, number one, the time it was released. There was There's a secondary school in central London, uh, Pimlico Academy, that has recently has recently been protested against the head head teacher. I think it was very, it was a very poor political decision to allow it to be leaked or to release it around the same time as these, as this uproar, this furor. And then also they've also shot themselves in the foot by recommending companies do X, Y, and Z to solve racial injustice, but then saying it doesn't exist on a systematic on a systemic or systematic level in the UK. So. Uh, from a purely political decision, it was very poor. I cannot comment yet on whether on their findings, the methodology they used. Um, I've read parts of it. Part, the parts that I read, they seem to suggest that differences were due to cultural factors or individual choices. But I do not think that will suffice for the people that were looking forward to the, the findings of the commission. Exactly. And I think what's a bit more strange about this is previous reports done by previous governments have been pretty damning on the UK. So the last sort of, I would say, you know, equivalent of this type of report was when um, a black man, um, I think Stephen Lawrence, had had died at the hands of the Met Police. And they, um, I think Blair was prime minister at the time, or it might have been Major, I'm, I'm not quite sure. They'd done a report. And the report found that the that the Met Police was institutionally racist, and it was the first time the word institutionally racist, I think, as a term, had been used. So, and you know, previous reports have talked about huge disparities. We even see with COVID, you know, people have talked about how Bain people are more likely to die and less likely to get vaccines, whatnot. So, in and of itself, it's strange that it's such a break from the past. As you said, the findings itself. I'll take it at face value if there haven't been any peer reviewed, you know, there hasn't been someone who's looked at the report, looked at the methodology and made comments on that. So I, as a, you know, I can't make, I can't judge uh, what the actual findings of the report are. I think in terms of when it talks about cultural leaning, I think it's true to some extent um, that basically the reason that, for example, the reason Indians or Asians do really well in examinations is because the culture in Indian families and Asian families is that, you work hard, you study hard, you get a good job, et cetera, et cetera. So, and, and, and whatnot. So I think that is, that is a contributing factor, but what it fails to understand also, what is the reason, reason for this culture? Well, it's because of different factors. Factors, external factors contribute to cultures within this particular community. So I think that's what, what, it, what is missed a little bit. Um, for example, Let's take the US, for example. You know, the black population there, unfortunately, because of years and years of oppression, is unfortunately, you know, less, more poor, more um, you know, uh, behind than the white population. But what why is that? Because of culture, okay? So the culture it, it, within the black community in the US is 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 not great. And you know, there's there's crime, there's there's single a lot, a lot of people that don't have their fathers. Yeah, but it, but at the same time, it's the result of being brought over as slave populations, not being exactly. given full franchise, exactly. uh, being placed in poorer districts of cities, redlining, uh, then mass exactly. in, yeah, mass incarceration. 
So while you can put these down to cultural factors, you've also got to think about what influences cultural factors because cultures don't exist in vacuums. Exactly. They're affected by public policy, especially when you forcibly move move and transport people around. Exactly. And and, and why okay, why is the single fatherhood, why, why is single motherhood rates high in the black community? Because the majority of black fathers are put in the, the prison system of the US for um silly reasons. When I say silly, I mean stupid reasons. Think about drugs, marijuana, um, racist laws, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So exactly. I, I think the report. I can't comment on the fact about institutionalized racism in the UK, but I do think it is worrying, you know, given the context and what what, what we already know about the report. Shall we move on to our sort of long form political discussion of the day? Yep, I I think that that would would be good to do. So just let me just introduce it quickly. So... We will now move on to sort of the discussion part. You remember last week, the discussion part was in the UK's vaccine rollout. So sort of the question of the day, what, what, whatever you want to call it, the, the, the discussion part of the programme, we're going to be talking about the future of the Republican Party in the United States. So, of course, Donald Trump lost um, the 2020 election. He lost. <laughs> um, there was They lost the Senate. They lost the House. Actually, in st- to be fair, in the House, they did pretty well. They gained a few seats, Senate, they didn't do as badly as expected. And actually in state houses all across the country, they gained they gained some momentum. So while some people have written off the Republican Party, like, oh, it's dead for the next few years, some have said, hold on, you know, it actually probably has, you know, a large, it's still very much relevant in, in, in US politics. So I think the question is not only how, what does the future success of the Republican Party look like under a two-party system, of course, it inevitably success is gonna happen. Um, it's more of who is gonna take the mantle of it. Is it gonna be the Trump Republican Party? Is it gonna go back to being this libertarian um, Mitt, party of Mitt Romney, basically, centrist on social issues, libertarian on economic issues? Is it gonna be America first, which is um, a different sort of ideology from Trump? Even though Immigration Trump- restrictionists. Exactly. Uh, against free trade, against foreign intervention. Exactly. Trump, the the, uh, the nuance... Champion these... Yeah, I think it's fair to say that Trump definitely championed these ideas in 2016. And But I do not think his presidency really lived up to the name. Very I little... Think, pro- yeah, what I think with Trump is the, the nuance is if it, if it becomes a Trump party, all it becomes is more sycophantic, more worshipping, more sort of cultish in, in its worship of Trump, if it becomes an America first party, that is different because that's an ideology, right? That is a certain way of running a country. Same thing with, um, you know, same thing with libertarian, an ideology versus, you know, cult-like personality. Cult of personality. There, there, is, there is nuance to that. Nathan. Yeah, it definitely formalizes and makes the sort of Trump idea seem more optical and more pleasant to maybe average voters in the suburbs of America. So I think the real the real challenge for Republicans in the US are these shifting racial demographics of states that they have traditionally won. So uh, they saw this first with Virginia. So Virginia is one of the top locations for um, migration into the US because obviously it's right next to Washington DC, very large state, uh, lots of business occurs there. So therefore it's a large targets of migration now immigrants overwhelmingly once they've received citizenship vote for democrats and that in part combined with 
uh, dying older white populations has caused the shift from shift of Virginia from a sort of swing slash red state to a blue state because now obviously they've uh, massive gun control, banned capital punishment. There are safe blue states, and that is going to happen across the Sunshine Belt. The, the Sunshine Belt is are the lower, the southern region of the U.S. That states like Arizona, Texas, Georgia, the Deep South. Uh, states like that are gaining in immigrant populations, especially those from Latin America. And that, in part, has been the cause of Arizona going blue. Now, in Georgia, it's slightly different. Georgia is also a large hotspot for immigration, but I think it's better to put the shift down to voter registration, particularly that by Stacey Abrams in predominantly Black communities. So the problems with the Republican Party are going to be voter registration and shifting demographics. Now, on the other hand, they are gaining in more rural, more working class, more previously industrial areas in the Midwest. So that's places like Minnesota and Pennsylvania and Michigan. Now, obviously Biden won those last time, but Trump won them for the first time in 2016. He didn't win them by fleek. They definitely believed in him, even if they pulled the leave the other way. Trump gained massively, particularly in more coal, in traditionally more coal mining areas. So it'll be important to see whether the Republican Party capitalizes on this. And I do believe there are senators in the Republican Party that are looking to capitalize on that. For example, Senator Josh Hawley from Missouri, against traditional Republican thinking, actually advocated for a $15, $15 minimum wage for workers at large corporations. Now that's unthinkable from a Republican candidate. Republicans haven't supported minimum wage increases at all since the Reagan era. So the fact that Hawley even, even suggested this it was, was treated as blasphemous in the Republican Party. So it'll be interesting, interesting to see how Republican rhetoric changes in an appeal to the working class of the North. Uh, and I think what's going to be interesting is, I think, although I, I, I personally, and I, I'm, I'm not going to try building politics into this too much, Personally, they don't, don't agree with, of course, America first and whatnot. I think it's getting the um, the mixture right because I think in in the US, what you see is a country that's on social issues, um, obviously in liberal areas, left wing, but it, on in Republican areas, it's right wing. But I would say center, center right. One would say on on social issues in terms of like abortion and, and gun rights and, and whatnot. But, but I think particularly Pennsylvania, Minnesota, these rural areas. But it's also left wing on economic issues, i.e. people are pretty protectionist in the US. People are, they do not like foreign wars. They want minimum wage increases. They like government programs like Medicare and Medicaid. Yeah, they support stimulus checks. They like things like universal basic income. So I think if the US, if if the Republican Party goes with this this Josh Hawley mixture, I think they can clean up in these sort of rural um, previous Democratic strongholds. Um, I think that, I think they 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 can clean up in those states. Um, I think they if they go back to the um, it depends what what states they want to win back. If they want to win back the Sun Belt states and 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 go that way, they they'll have to become the party of Mitt Romney, i.e. Mitt Romney. Marco Rubio, uh, John McCain, or the late John McCain. Exactly. They 
they actually before a, a bit of time ago they worked on an amnesty bill with the democrats which angered a lot of conservatives so and i think that those people they're a bit more you know they're more accepting of mass immigration and abortion for example mitt romney's not too heavy on um he thinks it should be a woman's choice. Gun control, they're a bit more receptive to, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's, that's what they want to do if they want to win back the Sunbelt states. If they want to go on the offense, like the Conservatives are in, in the UK, on, on former uh, you know, Democratic strongholds, they'd have to do a Josh Hawley, I, I think. But what's going to be interesting to see is who's going to... I don't think the Republican Party is smart enough to, to be as methodo- methodological as that. I think it's going to be civil war and whoever ends up winning ends up winning. Yeah, because what we've got to remember is Trump won Florida by three points. And you might think, well, that suggests that Floridians like tax cuts, they like low government spending, they don't want any sort of uh, social democratic policies. However, in their statewide referenda, their ballot, their also ballot referenda elections, they supported a $15, eventual $15 minimum wage increase by 60 to 40 so three in five uh, Floridians supported minimum, a minimum wage initiative, which means at least 10% of the people that voted for Trump also wanted minimum wage inc- increases. Exactly. And what, what, what the Democrats need to do if they, if they, if they want to, because the Democrats on, this, on their economic issues are, are widely popular in the US. And you can see uh, in Georgia as well, they literally ran on $2,000 checks, $2,000 checks alone. And they swept both Senate offices. So what Democrats need to do is emphasize their economic issues. And then in places where some of their social issues are not as popular, maybe tone it down. For example, they wanted to win in West Virginia. Um, they'd probably have to tone down or maybe be a bit more right wing on social issues and then be pretty left wing on economic issues. And I think that's what we need to do if we want to win these rural areas. And I think that's the way the Democratic Party would need to go if they want to win all of these places. But the Democrats actually don't even need to do that, to be honest. Um, they can just stick with the social issues, stick with their economic issues, and just you know sweep out of the Sun Belt. They don't, they don't even need to win back these rural areas, whereas the Republicans need to if they if they want to survive as a party. Now, I think with with the Civil War, who's going to win the Civil War? That's a, that's a different question. The part of the question is what ideology do they need to do to win? So that's what we talked about. But partly is who's going to win the Civil War now? In the Civil War, as we talked about, there's a, there's, there's a liberal side of the party. Okay, liberal is probably a wrong word. Libertarian side of the party. There's a Trump side of the party. But there's not actually that much um, representation for, quote unquote, America first. Because Trump isn't America first. He's just Trump first, right? He's just sycophant. He's just all about Trump himself, right? And I think if Trump were to win the, the Civil War, it wouldn't really matter. Because if Trump won, then all, all, all you have to do to, to control the party is just get approval from Donald Trump. You don't have to have an ideology attached to that. Whereas if the Mitt Romney's of the party won the civil war, you know, there's an ideology to, to attached to that at least. So I, I don't think the, the the battle right now in the Republican Party is ideological so much as like personality clash. That's definitely an interesting case. I'm I'm I don't necessarily think I agree what whether does Romney have a fixed ideology? I do not. Yeah, I think he I think he also I don't think he's as arrogant or as openly narcissistic as Trump has appeared to be. But I do think that he's in politics for his own good and he acquires power for his own good. I think, so, I think Romney's I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to use Romney's as a sort of I think when I say the word Romney, I'm trying to say it as a sort of general 
you know, a marker for for that side of the party. Like it's sort of okay, right? The side of the party that's center on social issues and then libertarian on economic issues. That's sort of that sort of side of the party, if you know what I mean. The traditional Republican party, the George W. Bush Republican Party, at least. Yeah. Well, the Bush was pretty right on social issues too. Um, yeah. You, yeah so what do you think yeah it's definitely the democrats to lose i mean joe biden has has been very effective in the in terms of the executive office he's definitely stumbled rhetorically and verbally but that doesn't matter when you're vaccinating more 100 million plus americans people will be willing to look past that if you're keeping to your promises of rejoining the paris climate accord reversing some of the more controversial Trump era orders on the wall and the transmilitary ban. It's definitely the Democrats to lose. I do I do not see them losing. I know it's very early to say I don't see them losing 2024 without a major event. And 2022, I don't see them losing that either. Yeah, I think if 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 um and actually what's interesting now, um so the IMF is predicting like 6.5, 7.5% growth for the US. And that's only going to go up if they pass Biden's new $3 trillion infrastructure package. And what a lot of experts are saying is that the US is about to enter, enter like, of course, for people don't know, in, in the previous century, there's something called the Roaring Twenties, whereby the US economy, after the First World War, went into overdrive, supercharged, brilliant 10 years, loads of people lifted out of poverty, just a great time. And now we're seeing all the same markers for this for this next decade. So, first of all, you know we've had COVID lockdown for like a year or two. So people are once it gets lifted, people are raring to go. They're ready to go party, travel, meet with their friends, do go to concerts, do whatnot. They're 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 ready to spend into the economy. B, the, uh, consumer confidence is high, and they're going to have a lot of money in their pockets because of Biden's stimulus checks and unemployment benefits and whatnot, and also. As I said, the, the U.S. Econ- the vaccines are, are do- going well. Stock market's up. It's all looking really good for the for, for the U.S. Plus, Joe Biden's approval rating is like sixty percent, sixty one percent. So he's he's riding high too. He has the political capital to pass to pass what he wants. So that's what's going to be really interesting. If the U.S. goes into this new roaring twenties economic expansion era, the the Republicans are going to find it hard to, to get back into power. They they honestly are because if Biden continues with the high approval ratings. If they have this economic expansion, then the Democrats are just going to keep winning, and it's going to take a proper like a depression for uh, for the Republicans to get back into power. Yeah, it's definitely as I stated before, it's the Democrats to lose. Exactly, uh, the balls in their courts. Exactly. Um, do you have Do you have anything else to say? No, I think that pretty much summarizes the week. Yep, I think that's that's been a really good uh, today's episode's been really good. Um, we've set up now. Um, we we've got we're, we're on a lot of platforms now. So we're on Anchor, we're on Spotify, we're on Google Podcasts, Breaker, Radio Pot, Radio Pocket, um, loads of um, sites. So if you head over to our Twitter at Demystifying P, um, that well, I'll put the link in in wherever you're watching. Uh, you can see all of our links to all of our sites. So we're on YouTube as well, Demystifying Politics, if you just search us up. We're on, uh, we're, we've also got an Instagram, which um, you can see as well, if you just go to add Demystifying Politics, uh, add, Demy- add Demystifying Pod, sorry. And 
yeah so just check us out on all of these platforms give us a follow give us a like and see you guys next week